Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. Today, Dr. Newfeld wraps up our current series on Matthew 3 and 4, The King Goes Public, with a reflection on the great king and his rule. So please open your Bibles now to Psalm 2 as we join Dr. Newfeld. In the late 1800s, during the time that construction was going on at Emerson Hall at Harvard, then-President Charles Eliot invited famous psychologist and philosopher William James to suggest a suitable inscription for the new home of the philosophy department at Harvard. After some reflection, William James sent President Eliot a line from the Greek philosopher Protagoras, man is the measure of all things. James never heard back from Eliot, so his curiosity was pretty high when he saw workmen working on the inscription that was being hidden by a large canvas. One morning, the scaffold, the workmen, and the canvas were gone. The inscription, it came from Psalm 8. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Gone was the supremacy of man, and in its place was a sense of wonder that the great God would be concerned for us at all. I was wondering how to end this short series on Matthew 3-4 entitled, The King Goes Public. We've traced the rise of Jesus from obscurity to great popularity. We ended by noticing how the crowds were growing and how Jesus responded to them by being moved with compassion. God is mindful for the plight of humanity. But Matthew 3 and 4 also tells us that the great king has taken a public stage and that he has begun to reign. And so I decided that Psalm 2 would be a fitting way to end this series. Psalm 2 is one of the royal psalms. Ten of the psalms in the book of Psalms were written to help Israel deal with the theological significance of the kingdom of David and of the future of that kingdom. Psalm 2 is also messianic. That means that the psalm contains an assumption that a descendant of David would one day rule on his throne and of his kingdom there would be no end. The New Testament quotes Psalm 2 on many occasions. Acts 4 records the first brush that Christians had with persecution. Peter and John have been arrested and brought before the rulers of Israel, but in the end they are released and the church meets together to give thanks. And then as they prayed, they remember Psalm 2. They remember that the psalm said that the rulers of the earth would band together against the Lord's anointed or his Messiah. In other words, they believed that Jesus was the subject of Psalm 2. The psalm is also quoted in Acts 13 when Paul is preaching in the synagogue in Antioch in Pisidia, which Paul uses this psalm to prove the Old Testament predicted the resurrection of Jesus. Again, the psalm is used in Hebrews 1.5 to prove that Jesus is superior to the angels, and the psalm is used in multiple occasions in the book of Revelation to speak of the greatness of Christ. So Christians have taken this psalm about David, which celebrates his coronation as king, and have rightly pointed out that this psalm also speaks prophetically of the greatest king, who would be a descendant of David, the one to rule all the nations. Well, let's read Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. 
The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him." Let's begin where the psalm does, with the long war against God's rule. The nations are raging against the one whom God has established as his great king. How long has this war been going on? The war begins the day when the serpent tells Eve, if she disobeys God, that she will be like God, a God in her own right. The war carries on when Cain, realizing that God rejects his offering and accepts his brother's offering, rose up against his brother and killed him in an open field. The rebellion against God gathers strength when men like Lamech are no longer ashamed of revenge and murder, but think it's a sign of their strength without God. And in David's day, the war rages as the Philistines and other nations seek to depose him and ruin his power. In the time of Christ, the war reaches its zenith when wicked men demand that the king of kings be nailed to a cross. Away with him, they shout. That's the war against God. Today, the war against God takes many forms. For instance, one can look today at what is called secularism and the forces that brought the Western world to a culture where God is basically ignored. In the 1700s in France, a new experiment was underway to build a society without God. And then it was the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche who argued that God is dead, that the Enlightenment was wiping the horizon of every vestige of God through both science and philosophy, that the human race had gone beyond good and evil, and that Jesus himself was nothing but a pathetic and ugly spider hanging from a cross, and that Jesus was the God of the weak and the despised. Evolution, he said, was the God of the strong and of the survivors. And in America, some of the founders were deists who believed that God had created the world but had gone away and was no longer interested in the world. Many have undertaken to write of the total transformation of Western cultures. The new culture is the experiment to live life without God. As one writer in the 1800s wrote, in the past when there was a plague or a disease, we used to crowd the cathedrals to call on God for mercy. Now we simply open up the manholes and repair the sewers. We have no need of God or of his rule. Such proud words, such confidence, such security that we have overcome even God. In fact, in a day when the official line in Canada is tolerance of all viewpoints, I find myself not surprised to meet university professors who literally rage against the Christian faith for a whole semester, boasting of every student that they have turned from God. But not all the war against God is fought on these grounds. Today, the war against God is sometimes felt in countries that persecute the people of God. Indeed, a number of watchdog lists have been formed, lists of leading countries in the world which persecute and kill Christians today. Recently, we have seen 21 Egyptian Coptic Christians brutally murdered in Libya by Muslim extremists who were educated in an ideology of evil. We're living in a time when more believers in Christ are dying for their faith than at any other time in history. And that doesn't even account for all those places where you can't get a leading job if you're a Christian, or you can't get a proper education for your kids, or you're excluded in some way. The war is heating up and not dying down. 
But whether it's in the arena of philosophy or in the arena of the politics of persecution and terror, it is impossible to live anywhere on this planet without being aware of the war against God's rule. And as we look at Psalm 2, we notice that the war against God is, in fact, a conspiracy against his rule. Verse 1 uses the word rage, which is noisy opposition. Then there's the word plot or conspire. Then in verse 2, they set themselves. That is, they try to establish a foothold upon which they might fight against God. Then we read the rulers counsel with each other, trying to band together so that their joint strength might overcome the Lord. Each of these four descriptions comes with an assumption, and I hope you don't miss it. The idea here is that the nations are not ruling, but rather they are fighting against, attempting to overthrow God's rule. In other words, it's not as if the nations have shut God out. Yes, they're trying to do that, but it is their attempt, it is their rebellion, it is their war which they have not won. But that's why they're fighting. And the key testimony of the Bible is this, God rules and sin necessitates war against God. That's why the nations rage. They hate this. They say, let's band together and let's stop his rule. And that's what's happening in the world today. It was happening in David's time. It happened at the beginning of time. It is also the story of the human race. It has always been a long war against God. And so verse 4 and 6 says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, and he will terrify the nations in his wrath and install his king on his holy hill. I call this God's calm response to the war. See, God is not threatened. Older theologians call God here the sitter in the heavens. He merely stays sitting on his throne. He does not even bother to rise because of this threat. And of course, why should he? All he has to say to rebels is, be no more, and that's it. Listen to the words of Psalm 33, 8 to 10. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. In a day when we think of the kingdom of God as besieged, we need to remember the one who reigns from the heavens. He is not under threat. And when we come back, we will consider God's plans when rebels plot against his kingdom. As we look around our world today, do you sometimes ask yourself, why is this world so evil? Is God really in control over all of this? This introduction has shown us that despite how godless the culture has become, this doesn't mean God is defeated. On the reverse, he is indeed ruling and reigning now and forever through his son, Jesus Christ. After the break, we'll continue examining how God responds to rebellious people who don't acknowledge who he is and how he's come to save and redeem. Great news. Our international ministry efforts in partnership with Back to the Bible India are making a great inroads. Now the broadcast out of India can be heard not only throughout the majority of that country, but now with our new radio partnership into the countries of Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Singapore, Thailand, Burma, Vietnam, Afghanistan, and parts of Iran, to name a few. And recently, we've been blessed to hear from listeners in Pakistan, Kenya, and Tanzania. In 2018, our budget for maintaining this great ministry partnership will be $75,000. This includes the broadcast of the program on air and online, impacting all these countries with the gospel, as well as conducting two more pastor and church leader Bible training conferences in June. 
please continue to support our international efforts. So much can be accomplished with your prayers and support. Call us today at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. I think of the boasts of people. Napoleon would take the crown from the hands of a priest and he would put the crown on his own head saying, it is not God who crowns me, I crown myself. And then when he had served God's purposes, he stood on the battlefield at Waterloo and God reduced him to a prisoner on the island of Elba. And as he lay dying and was afraid, the only man available to comfort him was a priest who was old and full of dementia. The sitter in the heavens laughs. Adolf Hitler said that he would build a Reich that would last a thousand years. It was over in a decade. And Stalin, as he lay dying, had a counselor who pled with him not to die. He called Stalin, my beloved father. And the very second he died, that same counselor spit in Stalin's dead face. And Friedrich Nietzsche, the atheist philosopher who said he had wiped the horizon of every vestige of God, spent the last years of his life completely mad, his mind diseased from the syphilis he had contracted. God is not threatened by rebels. Indeed, his plans are irresistible. Psalm 115 verse 3 says it all. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Or listen to Job's words to God. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now, the sense of Psalm 2 should become obvious. God speaks, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is God's response to the war. That is what he is doing in response to the challenge of rebels. And that's exactly what David experienced. David never volunteered to be king. He was chosen, set apart, and placed in the situation of kingship. The situation goes like this. David had now been king for some time. He had built his palace, his enemies were all defeated, and his kingdom had peace. And as David, perhaps now with time on his hands, began looking around to see what was missing, something occurred to him. Here he was living in this beautiful palace, and just steps away was the tabernacle, and something was wrong. His palace was built of wood and stone and seemed substantial, and the tabernacle was a tent. So David decides that he will build a temple grand and big enough so that his palace would never overshadow it, big enough to declare the greatness of God. And many of you know the story. In the end, Nathan the prophet announced that things were going to turn out differently than David had planned. David would not end up building a house for God. Instead, God would build a house for David. And then in this amazing word, on which the entire Old Testament turns. God announces that he will establish David's throne in his kingdom forever. David would have a greater son who would rule on his throne, and this son would rule all the nations. It turns out that King David and his kingdom was only a symbol or a type or a foreshadowing of the greater king whose kingdom would rule all kings. And in reality, Psalm 2, the entire psalm, is in fact this promise put into the form of poetry. David himself tells of what happened. Verse 7 to 9 reads as follows. I will tell you the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage. What you have here is a description of God's unstoppable plan for the nations. How is God going to accomplish his defeat of the enemies? Well, for one, God could very simply say to his enemies, be no more. Or he could keep frustrating their plans as he's done from the beginning. 
But what we find is that God's rule will be exercised in a very particular way. He will install the Messiah. Now, we've already seen that David is a foreshadowing or a type of the Messiah. If God told David, you are my son, what did God mean? Well, according to 2 Samuel 7.14, it says, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. That expression is elsewhere found in the Old Testament. For instance, in Psalm 103, it tells us, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on us. All that David knows in 2 Samuel 7 is that he knew himself to be the object of God's fatherly love. But according to Romans 1.4, Jesus was declared to be the Son by his resurrection from the dead. Now, to be sure, Jesus was always the Son, but at his resurrection... When he destroyed death itself, the kings, the princes, the leaders, the presidents, prime ministers, and for that matter, the doctors, lawyers, carpenters, moms and dads, and everyone else heard the decree, you are my beloved son. God had installed his king on his holy hill. But for what purpose? In Psalm 2 verse 8, the purpose is given. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage. Unlike David, who ruled only a small area of the world, this son will ask the father, and this son will rule all the nations. No rebel will stand against him. I remember walking through that square in the city of Timisoara that marked the end of communism in Romania. I walked there with a pastor who told me of the horrible history of that place. As the communist dictator ordered that all Christians gathered in that square on a certain day were to be shot on the spot, and how the army began to do what they were commanded and then suddenly quit, and how this led to the end of the brutal tyrant Ceausescu and the end of his atheistic reign. Then this pastor said to me, and I'll never forget this word, he said, this is the end of everyone who will not bow the knee to Christ. See, the real question is this, who is Jesus? He is either the rightful heir of David's throne or he is not. He is either the Messiah of Psalm 2, or he is not. He is either the one before whom every knee must bow, or he is not. And if he is King of kings and Lord of lords, he is to be feared. And according to Romans 1-4, this matter was settled 2,000 years ago in a newly cut tomb when the badly whipped and tortured and lifeless corpse of Jesus of Nazareth was laid into a tomb, and he, by the power of an indestructible life, broke through the prison of death itself and laid in broken and tattered ruins the kingdom of Satan. By this one act, a proclamation was issued throughout the universe, he reigns by the eternal decree of the Father. You know, as we studied Matthew 3 and 4 and entitled those two short chapters, The King Goes Public, we should reflect on what those early days of Jesus really meant. People were now hearing of him casting out demons and raising the dead, and his fame was growing, and all Galilee was going to where he was, and people were coming from Syria and Tyre and Sidon and the Decapolis and Judea and Jerusalem. And this was but the beginning. This was but a mustard seed planted in a garden. This beginning, however, would one day branch out and rule the world. And what should we do with that knowledge? Psalm 2 verse 10 and following says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord. Kiss the Son. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, lest his anger break out and you are destroyed in the way. See, the wise should respond to the nature of things. I mean, the nature of things is clear. God rules. The nations want to overthrow his rule. 
God laughs. He installs his king, King Jesus the Messiah, who will one day rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's the nature of things. What then should you do? You should serve the Lord. One songwriter wrote, we can serve the Lord for love or we can serve the Lord for fear. But refusing his commands is not a choice we ought to bear. Indeed, take this to heart. And here's the good news. When the great king went public, he had compassion on the crowds. He healed their sick and drove out their demons. He was loving. He told us to stop building our house on the sand and build it on a rock. But never forget that the one who loves deeply is also the great king installed by the Father on his holy hill. Rebels may band against him, but this king will prevail. Once the king went public, his kingdom would never end. Indeed, his kingdom is destined to rule the world. That is the force of history. And that brings us back to the place where I began. O great king, who is going to rule all things. What is man that you are mindful of him? Why is it you whose reign is so great that you took the time and still take the time to be compassionate and merciful to all who take refuge in you? How is it that your mercy is so great? And that's the question of the king. Oh, Lord, our God, thank you for Jesus that he in this time has spread his mercy and his grace, lavished it upon us. We thank you for this. Amen. John, I could tell you're passionate about this and uh, the way you're expressing yourself today and your heart for the kingdom and your heart for Christ and that people might know Christ. So, at the end of our series, what's the one thing you want people to go away with as we conclude the series on Matthew? See, I want them to get a sense of the greatness of the king. I want people to stop fearing that history might in some fashion be against us and start recognizing that because of Christ, history is for us. The king has come to reign, so let's stop being so faithless that we think that we're just barely hanging on and the church is in decline and you know all these terrible things we tell ourselves. Maybe you know we say, will my faith survive? Listen, our king is greater than all other kings and he is reigning. So have that in your heart, know that with certainty. That's not gonna be taken away from you. And out of that kind of confidence, begin to live that confidence every single day. So I, I think those are messages that should stay with us throughout this series. Thanks so much, John, and thanks for a great series in the book of Matthew. And remember to join us again right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. Can I smoke pot? Well, this month on Truth and Life Today, Dr. John Newfeld welcomed Mark Ward to discuss his book, Can I Smoke Pot? Marijuana in the Light of Scripture. You know, by looking at the biblical teaching on creation, government, medicine, and alcohol, this book sets out to help people make wise and God-honoring decisions about marijuana use. Rather than just providing a list of proof texts, Can I Smoke Pot? Marijuana in the Light of Scripture looks at what the Bible teaches as a unified whole, from Genesis to Revelation, so we can more confidently answer the question, what does the Bible say? So for the month of April, we want to make this timely book available to our listeners for only $8, and it includes 
shipping, handling, and taxes. So give us a call today, would you? The number is 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca and remember to order yours today because quantities are limited.